Well, tonight we will be in Hebrews chapter 6. Uh, but before I got started, I, I wanted to ask, is everyone doing all right after going through Hebrews 6, 4 through 8? Well, good, good. You know, um, you know, I often say at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, as Jesus says, in the day of judgment there will be many of you that come to me and say, Lord, Lord, did I not prophesy in your name? Did I not perform miracles in your name? And I will say unto you, go away from me, I never knew you, that that is the most terrifying sentence in all of the Bible. Hebrews 6, 4 through 8 is really the continuation of that same warning that we find from our Lord. But it's found not in the sense of Jesus' teaching. It's found in the sense of a teacher writing to the people that he loves. As we come to verse 9 this evening, we find that our author uses the words, Beloved as he addresses the people he is speaking to. I wouldn't normally make much of that. As a matter of fact, it's entered into the way that I dialogue as I teach. I will often address you all as my loved ones. And, and I don't say that with absence of mind. I don't say that as something that is just kind of to placate or make my sentence flow because I don't want to say you all, but because you are my loved ones. I do want to make something of it tonight. Our author does not use this word or phrase anywhere else in the entire letter of Hebrews. It is only found immediately following what is a great warning. Our text picks up in verse 9. I want to read through verse 12. Read along with me as we look at our text. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for His name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. What strikes me about this passage, just as we get going, is that our author has a pastor's heart. He doesn't run away from telling the people what they need to hear. He gives them a warning that is eternally shaking. And he turns immediately to encouraging them. He goes into the hard truth and he doesn't hold back, but he immediately comes back to being comforting and gentle. He calls them beloved because he wants them to know that they're loved. This gives us some insight into the audience that he was writing to. You see, the author admits, first of all, that the things that he had just said, the things that we looked at this morning, were harsh. He says, though we speak to you in this way, 
In your case, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. He acknowledges before them, I know that what I have said is harsh. But I don't think that he's saying this to trivialize or to make less of what he has warned the people he is writing to about. The the reason he says this is because he wants to comfort them as they are aware of their own need for salvation, as they are consciously reminded of their need to be sure that their salvation is a surety because any resemblance of the false thing will not prevail and it won't be refined. He says that he's confident. That is, as confident as a person can be of another person's salvation. He is confident that they will continue in the faith. Continuing in the faith, much as we discussed this morning, is the evidence that things have been accomplished that concern salvation. It is not a momentary decision that makes us confident of a person's salvation. It is their ability to persevere as they grow in maturity. There's a lot that comes with that. Growing is not an easy task. Growing is painful. Every step of the way, growing is painful. As you learn what self-discipline means, as you learn uh, how, how many lessons... How many times have we said to ourselves, you know, my parents tried to teach me that, but I had to learn it on my own. I know in my case, there's dozens of examples where if I would have heeded the warning of those older and wiser of me, I would have been far better off. But the truth is, it wasn't a lesson that I could have learned from somebody else. It was something I had to learn on my own. Growing comes with pain. Maturing grows with pain. And so, in a spiritual sense, that is the same. Pushing onwards to maturity does not mean that our life is going to get easier. Even that our faith is going to, by some miraculous event, become stronger. It means it's going to be shaken. It's going to be moved around. And we're going to have to continue to grow through that. That is ultimately what shows us that our faith is the real deal. That it's not just constrained to being a preservative of things that we hold on to, but that it's dynamic as it grows. Putting away the bottles, starting to chew meat having a healthy diet and building upon all of these things. It gives us confidence that the faith is the real deal because it's being refined like gold. That it is there and that it has the ability to accomplish salvation, not just accomplish salvation, but notice what our author says. He says, things that belong to salvation. It's actually the perseverance of these very things that is the evidence that salvation took place to begin with. This is actually the evidence that salvation was genuine. In reflecting on this, I often think of the, you know, I mentioned church camp. And something wonderful happens whenever you take people out of their environment for a week to two weeks and you put them in a room where every day, three times a day, they're hearing the Word of God preached and right before lunch they're sitting in small groups discussing the Word of God. And you'll have 
50 to 100 children come forward and place their faith in Christ. Now, do we know that 50 to 100 of those professions of faith are genuine? Well, by no means. When it's tested, the way that we know is when these same children continue to grow up and they continue to persevere in the faith. We know that we have done good, at least in the sight of God, in proclaiming truth to them that they have been enlightened, that they have tasted these heavenly things, that they have had an experience of salvation. When we talk about revival meetings, we see much the same thing because it's not just children that respond to these sorts of events, but it's adults. And I think even more likely in college areas where you have children who are engaging their faith in new ways for the very first time, no longer, longer under the headship of their parents or grandparents, but they're experiencing these things for themselves, they begin to grow by leaps and bounds in their faith. And it's not something that should be discouraged. It's something that should be encouraged. We should protect them and we should offer them guidance, but at the same time, we have to give them the ability to grow on their own, to make their faith their own. The evidence of salvation is not born in a moment of profession. It is born in a lifetime of resolute commitment. Our author moves, I said, to comforting his audience because these are real people, a real church, real believers that I believe are facing discouragement. As I look at the warning, if you need a reminder, for those of you that have tasted the heavenly gift, church is serious business, so serious, in fact, I believe it's perilous if you leave here without being transformed. Because it results, verse Five or verse 4 of our text being impossible for you to once again be returned to repentance. That's pretty perilous. About as perilous as it gets. I've lost my train of thought. Every time I say that warning, it shakes me just a little bit. I'm not okay saying it. These people need to be encouraged because we don't wind up in this position where we need a warning because things have gone easily for us. The church winds up in this position because we succumb to complacency in our spiritual walk. We often talk about the backsliding Baptist. Becoming backslidden isn't something that happens overnight. It starts with the small things. Well, I skipped my daily Bible reading this morning because I was in a crunch. Well, it's just the Wednesday night service that I'm avoiding. Well, soon enough, it'll be the Sunday night service. And soon enough, it'll be Sunday school too. And soon enough after that, I just go to church once a month. Soon enough, you're going to be a Christmas and Easter Christian. And soon enough after that, this text is going to be directed right towards you. Complacency is a slippery slope. The reason for this warning, the reason for the encouragement to push onward to maturity is because the, real, the spiritual reality of growth is that you're either growing or you're declining. There is no such thing as holding steady with God. 
We are either growing closer to Him in our walk or we are pulling and drifting further away. Well, we need to be encouraged. Maybe we have found ourselves in the position that we're a little complacent. We're a little apathetic. We're a little discontented or whatever it is. Maybe we have made ourselves, rather than being conservative towards the truths of God, preservatives. Well, we do need this warning. It's not there to shake us. It's there to encourage us because we can be sure of these things that belong to salvation. And our author hinges this encouragement on what I think is the greatest source of strength that we could possibly find. Verse 10, he says, For God is not unjust. I'll just pause there. For God is not unjust. He appeals to God's very nature as the reason why this should not come across as a warning that makes us shake in our boots, but it comes across as a warning that should spur us onward to greater and closer relationship and commitment to our Lord and Savior. God is not unjust. He's not unjust to condemn those that have walked away, no longer offering them the ability to repent. And He's not unjust to you. He's not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for His name in serving the saints. Much of the ministry of the church can become discouraging. Because things take place on God's schedule and by God's will and not by our own. Well, if I could have my own way, my prayers would have immediate impact. God, I pray that you would get the complacent stirred. I pray that a fire would be stirred in their heart that they would seek to know you. Pray that people would use every moment that they have that is not already committed to providing for them a livelihood to learning and growing closer to you. I do wish that my prayers had immediate impact, but the reality is God moves on His timetable. If I'm going to draw closer to Him, I have to be ready to admit that His timetable is better than my own. And so that love, even in my prayers, even the expressions of love and going to visit people because we care about them, even our expressions of love and being concerned for those who are lost and in need, those who are destitute, even in all of these acts of service, especially in serving the saints, it's easy to become discouraged. Well, is it good for anything? It is. Our encouragement comes in that we should keep these things because it is the perseverance of our actions that prove salvation. Our encouragement comes in the fact that it's our ability to overcome the discouragement that is hinged to living on God's timetable as we wait by faith that motivates us and stirs us to continue in this. Listen, the spiritual danger of discouragement is real. 
We've all been there. I think this is something we've all experienced. We've all come into contact with discouragement either in our lives or discouragement in a spiritual sense. That's dangerous. Not just, not just in the sense that we could say, well, you need to have faith. It's dangerous because when left there without somebody caring for us, it can lead to fatal missteps. It can ultimately drift on to a calculated rebellion that will result in the warning of our text in this morning coming to fruition. So what are these people that the author of Hebrews is writing to? What are they discouraged about? What has come upon them that has made them complacent or apathetic? What about our friends that depart us? How long does it take after becoming a Christian that your friends stop hanging out with you? Is it one to two years? Three to five years? Some of you were safe so young you don't even know. That's good for you. Those of us who are saved later on in life know this to be the case. When there's such radical transformation in somebody's life, some of the crowds that they used to hang around with, although they try to maintain those relationships, those friends really just don't want to spend time with the holy roller. That's discouraging. What about when those who we thought were a part of us drift away? Oh, we see this in the church. What about those who succumb to the false teachers that have infiltrated every area of our lives, not just drawing us near to political lunacy, drawing us towards charismatic doctrines that do not reflect what God would have for us, that would teach us to glorify life on earth rather than pursuing the hope that is eternal in heaven. Well, that's discouraging. What about the seemingly never-ending consequence of heartache and grief that walks parallel with practicing biblical church discipline? Well, that's discouraging. In fact, for many, it's become a reason not to practice church discipline at all. These things aren't meant to be easy. Our life on earth is not meant to be easy. We're called soldiers. What are we to do in such discouragement? What about the fatigue from praying? We need encouragement. Our encouragement comes in the promise of God. Because He's not unjust, He remembers us. It says, God has not forgotten you. We are a people who know the truly revealed God, not grasping up in the air for some depiction of who the divine is, but a people who have a book given to us and inspired by the very breathed out word of God before us, that we would not know him as strangers, but that we would know him as a people who come to meet their own father. Tough love goes much further when it's spoken to us with a tender voice. 
When you look at the contrast between a perfectly holy God and a depraved man, the tough love that we find in the Bible in recognizing our own sinfulness does not come with a brow-beating, Bible-thumping kind of roar, but it comes with a compassionate and gentle embrace of a brother. One that the Bible calls our very Lord and Savior, who is gentle with the wayward and the ignorant. Hebrews 5 verse 2. Our author gives us this encouragement, not as a means of stirring us up, but by making us recognize that there is something far greater for us than simply being complacent. There's something greater in the comforting embrace of a Savior that wants to hold us close by. A God, a Father who will not forget us, who is not unjust, who knows all things and is able to be righteous in all of the decrees that He makes. Not overlooking our faithfulness that it pursues and perseveres through time, even in serving the saints as you still do, verse 10. Our author writes to this peculiar bunch of Hebraic uh, church members. Writing to them, we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. How can we be confident that these things within the lives of our church members are accompanied by salvation? The scary truth is, as we look at the descriptions of those that we would call apostates, those who have been enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted in the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, these descriptions seem to be something that we could only bear witness about in somebody's life. Indeed, we would say of many people, I believe that they're probably reliable. One thing that I've been personally impressed by has been the fact that Jesus, nowhere in his earthly ministry, told us to evaluate the truthfulness or the authenticity of teachers that would come by their rhetoric. That is, by the things that they would say, by the logical flow of their arguments. He didn't tell us to evaluate whether somebody was a wolf in sheep's clothing or whether somebody was truly a sheep that belonged to the shepherd by what they said. He told us to evaluate them by what they do, by the way that they live their lives. You'll know these people by the fruit that they produce. How do you think it's possible that they begun to produce fruit in the first place? Was it by being complacent? If you took a plant from the nursery, it's springtime, so everyone's interested in plants, at least until May, whenever they all die, except for you, those of you with green thumbs. They'll all be dead in my house in May. But... um. It's springtime, so if you take a plant from the nursery and you put it in whatever that infancy soil is, there's different kinds of soil, I've been told, and you leave it there all season long, will it survive? No, because there's no nourishment in the soil. It's a baby seedling. It gets all of its nourishment from the seed. The seed that has been brought forth for maturation possesses everything that it needs in order that it might grow. But once it buds, once it sprouts, what do you have to do with that seedling? You have to transplant it and you have to put it in soil that is rich in nitrogen or whatever. 
I think it's witchcraft, those of you that can grow plants. But you have to transplant it into soil that it can continue to mature. This is illustration, I think, is the same with Christians. The Holy Spirit offers us everything that we need to grow in Him, but He gives us that growth through an understanding of His Word. After experiencing salvation, you, cannot, you can no longer rely upon the nutrients that were deposited in seed form through faith. Now, you must allow that faith to grow in rich soil that is the Word of God. It's through this encouragement and maturation that leaves begin to grow with strength, that roots begin to plunge deep into the ground, so that we would not become like those of who Jesus spoke in the parable about the seeds scattered on three different soils, those seeds that were scattered along the rock. They sprouted at first, they brought forth, they looked green, they were pretty, but when the sun came up, they were scorched because they had no means of reaching moisture for themselves. This is the encouragement that we find, that saints are able to, with earnestness, persevere growing in maturity because our only obstacle is not just going to come from difficult passages that we need to read. It's going to come from a world that does not understand us. And because they do not understand us, condemns us. If you want to be ready for those external uh, trials, we have to be mature. We must have deep roots. And in order for that to take place, we must, with the same earnestness with which we began, pursue what is, verse 11, the full assurance of hope until the end. Not because we're pursuing something that's absent-mindedly some way far off in the future, but because my expectation for my hopeful reality in every moment exists in the next moment that is to come. Speaking of eternal things, we cannot take our eyes off of the reality that we are presently in the last days. The clock's ticking. People are dying. If we're complacent, where are they going? Our encouragement comes from the fact that we know what is coming. Not only do we know it, but we have an answer for it. I know where I am going. And I'm going there because of a Savior that has procured it for me. With earnestness, I can pursue the full assurance of the hope that is until the end. With confidence that God is not unjust to forget these things, but rather that He is just to see that I have been obedient to Him. He promises not only to protect us by His sovereign hand in bringing us to salvation and persevering the saints by making salvation secure, but with a reward. This is how great the love of God is, not just that He protects us in salvation by bringing us to it, but even though we did nothing to earn salvation by our good works, He promises to give us a reward. You put that into perspective and it suddenly makes sense. When we stand in heaven on the day of the judgment seat of Christ, at the judgment seat of Christ, we stand here. 
The saints gathered all around, being rewarded for their faithfulness, being given crowns for their faithfulness. What are we going to do with those crowns? Recognizing the love that purchased us, not because of anything that we did, but because of what He did. Recognizing our very existence hinged towards His providence. Recognizing our very birth based in His will. (coughs) We're going to take those crowns off and lay them before His feet. This is the hope that lies before us. This is the thing that we look forward to. And loved ones, notice this is an elementary doctrine. Hebrews chapter 6 verse 2. The elementary doctrines included at the last is the eternal judgment. As we look forward to this day of great hope coming to fruition, we have expectations not only that it will come at the end of our lives. It's not my vitality that makes me think that I have time because I believe the time is imminent. That Christ's return could come before I finish preaching this message. That if it doesn't come then, that it may come tomorrow. And there's people that I need to, I want to speak with before then. There's people that I want to see come to salvation before then. And I know that it's only going to happen on God's timetable. And so while I'm discouraged by all of the rejection that comes from preaching God's word faithfully, all of the rejection that comes from declaring God's truth with with without a care in the world for what the world thinks, but with all the concern of what God thinks. I must be encouraged that it is my reward in heaven that I look forward to. And so this is the same for you. God has not forgotten you. Part of the reason I think people are drawn towards discouragement is simply because we mistake the applause of people rather than looking forward to our hope that lies in the future. I don't think this is all wrong. Many times I believe that there have been faithful people of God that have proclaimed God's word faithfully and lived out His word faithfully and demonstrated what I believe demonstrates remarkable sainthood. We call these people the giants of the faith. I've known some of them personally myself. They've gone through the same discouragement that you and I have gone through. They've been to the same places that we have walked. And they have persevered through those hardships. What has made them giants of the faith has been their perseverance. They did not become sluggish but they became imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. This is our great encouragement that we have promises that await us in our hope. We might be discouraged. We might look around and say, what am I doing all of this for? I feel like I'm a greater hindrance than I am a blessing to the people that I live life with. Maybe I'm not mature enough. Maybe I'm not grown up enough. Maybe I need more education. Maybe I need more training. Maybe I need more someone to come alongside me. 
And we're reminded as we come to verse 12, we find the word sluggish, the same word used all the way back in Hebrews 5 verse 12. When our author is teaching, telling us that we should grow up towards maturity, he says, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. I'm sorry, I'm at verse 11. This word sluggish is the same word used when he says, your ears have become dull of hearing. The word translated sluggish is the same word translated dull. Remember I said a week ago as we came to that passage that another translation would be that literally your ears have become sluggish. This is what we mean by complacency, right? That, that we've fallen into such a routine that we no longer strive for the kingdom of God. There's a real problem when we're more concerned with the success of our workplace than we are concerned about the success of a church. When we're more concerned about personal portfolios than we are about the success of the church. Our hope falls in being able to rest in the fact that there are those that have come before us. Our instruction for maturity is that we would push onward with diligence, that we would practice the powers of discernment, that we would become trained in the practice of distinguishing good from evil, that we would with earnestness have the full assurance of the hope until the end, that we may not be sluggish, but that we might be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit these promises. This isn't, the author's not saying here, fake it until you make it. He's saying, look at those who have come before you that have persevered until the end, that have been giants of the faith, who by a life of faithfulness, we are able to affirm that they came to a real salvation. Not only that they didn't drift away, but that they made it. Imitate those people who through faith and patience endured all of these obstacles that we've mentioned. Discouragement of friends falling away. The discouragement of those that we thought were of us falling away. The discouragement of heartache when we have to deal with sin in the church. The discouragement of fatigue when we are praying. Practice these things with faith. That means even when we don't see the results, having confidence in what God is already doing by our faithfulness to ask these things of Him. And by relying on Him, we have patience to wait that He answers all prayers. And I mean that, answers all prayers. He says somewhere in His Word, in the moment that it has been requested, I have already answered it. We see something of his eternal nature in that as he makes in context that same passage, the promise that Christ will come and that he will become the savior that we need, ultimately becoming the high priest that is able to serve with a priesthood that is never ending, that he is able to come and he fulfills that in the moment the promise is made. Zip away from that for a second and consider God saying that in the moment I say I will do something, I do it. He makes a promise all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 that from the descendants of Eve that her seed will come and crush the serpent's head. We call that the euangelion, 
the gospel, the first evidence of the gospel, plants it all the way back in Genesis. And it's fulfilled not until the New Testament. That means God, from His eternal perspective, something we're not able to grasp because we are not infinite, but we are the opposite, finite, sees all things at once. When we wait with patience, it's also with confidence that it's for our best. Our encouragement comes from God's nature, not our own. We have a full assurance of hope before us. We should not be discouraged in thinking that the preacher is not sure of anyone's salvation. Rather, our confidence should come that our preacher won't be standing at the gates of heaven. Jesus Christ will. And He knows all those who the Father has given to Him. And they cannot depart from His hand. They cannot be snatched away from it. For none is greater than the Father. Father in heaven, I thank you for your word this evening. Lord, I pray that we would take not only this warning, but this encouragement, and we would apply it to our lives. That we would not be slothful to pursue you. But as your word says, that we would get to the ant, no longer being sluggards and growing in maturity, but working in diligence with earnestness, God practicing the powers of discernment you have granted to us through your spirit, that our lives might be a testimony that is evidenced by our ability to persevere until the end. And God, with all sincerity, we pray that that day would come soon. Because I do not look forward to a happy retirement or a future vacation. God, I look forward to a life eternal with you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.